kind of to help us back in, we are going to get into this series we're in, in the story of Ruth, which is this incredibly beautiful um, story of ordinary life and God's working through ordinary life to accomplish his much bigger purposes. Uh, but before we get there, I just wanted to pick up where we'd kind of left off before the great uh, fire sale of stock left over uh, within the suite and within this room, uh, which is to say it has all gone now. Uh, it did, did seem that we all either, one, were slightly embarrassed to own up to what was ours, or two, and I'm probably more going to go with this, that we're pretty ruthless of wanting free stuff. And so if we see some stuff on the floor, we're just going to take it. And so I, I'm going to go with that one. But um, as long as the kind of fire sale of stuff that's kind of going on within Oasis, I want to just draw us back in respect to where we got to in terms of worship. And I just... I guess I, I believe that with that song, that refrain that we just started with and ended with of uh, here's my heart, Lord, I just felt like God wanted to encourage different ones of us uh, that he knows where our heart's at. And I, I just I felt that. I felt for some of us, we know that as we've come this morning, our heart uh, feels a little cold, a little hard. Maybe it's just through what life's doing to us. For others of us, it feels like our heart is very open and warm. And I felt just God wanted to just encourage us as we continue this morning that actually regardless of where we feel the state of our heart is at, he wants to come and meet with us. And that it's not by chance that we're here this morning. That God uniquely wants to come and meet with you and meet with me. And so I want to encourage us, just as we started this morning with that just sense of, well, here's my heart, God. Here's, here's my life. Our heart is, is kind of the, the biblical way of saying this is the core of who I am. This is the very center of my being, and I just come and open it to you, God. In all its frailty, in all its beauty, I come and open myself to you and say, God, have your way in me. And that's what I want us to kind of stay open to, I think, this morning. But if you've been around the last few weeks, we've been in this series looking at the story of Ruth. And if you like, I'm going to do a soap opera type um, kind of look at where we've been in order that we can understand we get into the next episode. Uh, and so what we've been is like, there's different headings, I guess. Is the first one is darkness. That basically this is a story that starts in great darkness. Darkness of famine and need. Darkness of death. A death of many different family members involved and connected uh, intimately to the key characters that we're left with. And out of this emerging of darkness of famine and death, you get these two characters, these two women, Naomi and Ruth who are left looking to say, what is life going to look like? Both have lost their husbands. One has lost her children. And we find that they then, at that point of darkness, return. Return to a land that was Naomi's home. A land that was about the people of God. Returning to a town that she knew. And, and in her return, we find that it's marked continuously with disappointment. A disappointment that actually was covered by this fact that they'd left as a family what was their home, to go to a land that they were hoping for rescue. And that actually when they got to that land, rather than finding rescue, that all they found was death and hopelessness. And so it's with total disappointment we find them returning back to Naomi's home. But in it, what we find is that that hasn't not had an effect on Naomi. And so if you were around last week, you know that Gus excellently took us through the story of Naomi arriving back in town and kind of word of mouth got around and everyone was calling out, hey, it's Naomi, hey, Naomi's back. And she kind of gets that moment of saying, I will no longer be called Naomi. 
which kind of meant beautiful and um, wonderful. And she said, I'm no longer going to be known as beautiful, wonderful, pleasant. I'm going to be known as Mari. Mari, because I am bitter. And we kind of left that moment of just her announcing again that this is, this is what I am. This is what my life has become. This is what God has dealt me. And therefore, I want to be known as this. And it was in that position of being known that we found actually in that place of her bitterness, as she looked at the despair and hopelessness of what had happened in her life, that actually she got to this point of saying, the, the author, the narrator of the story kind of ends saying, well, it, it doesn't end here. It doesn't end with Naomi saying, I've rebranded. I will now be called Mari. It kind of, as Gus uh, pointed to, we get to this point at the end of the, that part of the story, the end of the cliffhanger of the episode where actually the narrator says, oh, no, she's still called Naomi. Oh, and Harvest is here. It was like there's this light that's breaking in to the darkness of this story. And it's at that point that I want us to pick, us, pick it up, that they've returned back home, Naomi's home. They've returned to home when it's harvest. And at this point, what we're going to find is the narrator of the story is going to pick up pace. He's going to pick up, or she is going to pick up pace. Uh, at that point, you're thinking, is it he or is it she? Probably, I'm going to go for she. You can do your own reading, and you might want to go for he. Now, I'm going for she. At this point in time, I'm not going to tell you why. If you want to come and debate that with me afterwards, please do. But I think it's probably a she. And so she kind of, at this point, is quickening the pace of the story because she wants us to get hold of the fact that this story isn't just evolving naturally. There's someone orchestrating it behind and things are about to accelerate. And where there is despair and hopelessness, hope is about to break in. And so the pace begins to quicken. And so let's turn to Ruth chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 to 20. We'll make some comments along the way, and then we'll pause and say, okay, what are we going to make of this part of the story then? What are we going to make of this episode? So you find this. Now now Naomi even, now Naomi, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now at this point, this is a really key part of what we get to look in on as those being told the story. If you like, because we're so used to our age of the visual image, we get used to that moment in the, in the film, in the episode, where we get to see something, and soap operas are brilliant at this, or they'll show you a hint, or they'll show you the person who does the crime, and that's that point where you find out, oh, it's him who murdered her. And then you realize that no one else in the cast knows this fact. And so we're now privy to some piece of information that everyone else has to then find out as the episodes go on. And by the end, they might drag that out for a whole series. A whole series where you're thinking, when's everyone going to find out? We knew episode one that they'd done it. But no one else does. And so we're there by the end, screaming at our TVs, saying, don't you know? They did it. Everything points to them. They could have rounded this off of the first episode, yet you've kept it going. And if you like, this is that tool of causing us as the readers, as the hearers, to hear a piece of the story in order that we can start to see this story unpack. And we can start to look in and say, no way, that's going on. So we find out here something that Ruth doesn't know at all, that there is a relative called Boaz. 
And Boaz is going to be the introduction of this third key character of the story. We continue, verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. See, what here happens here, we've got two women who arrive in a culture that's dominated by men who have no way of providing really for themselves, have no one who's looking to provide for them. And therefore, Naomi, uh, therefore Ruth decides to take a moment and say, actually, we've got to make something happen here. Otherwise, we're going to starve. Therefore, she says, what I'm going to go and do is go and take hold of grain that's left over by harvesters. This was a time where God had... Um, sought to take care of those that were uh, marginalized in society, those who were poor, those who were desperate, the fatherless, the widower, uh, those who were foreign. And how God did that is he told his people that when you harvest, what you need to do is leave the edge of your field in order that anyone can go and take the grain that's left there. Also, that if you drop grain, you're not to pick it up. You're just to leave it so that others can be cared for and take care of that. So you'd find that within the harvest season, there'll be those who are being paid to harvest, but also those who are going along who were the desperate, who would follow along some way behind those who were harvesting in order they could try and make something, in order they could survive in this kind of hand-to-mouth society. So let's continue. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. Sorry, there's so much going on here. I want us to understand when this is going on about farming. Here's a quick farming lesson. I don't know if you're into your Xbox. Apparently, I looked the other day, there's a game called um, Virtual Farmer. So you can become a virtual farmer. I can think of nothing worse. But there you go. You can spend your days kind of getting better tractors getting bigger fields, and you can invest yourself in a virtual world where you become a farmer of your dreams. So if that's for you, $39.99, and you could have that for your life. Or you could live in the real world and actually go and do this. In this moment in time, when they looked at farming, it wasn't how we do farming, where there's big fields with big fences or big hedges. Here, it would have been like a patchwork. So you'd have just had an enormous space and that enormous space would have been divided like a patchwork quilt into different sections that were owned by different people. And so if you like, that enormous space was then split into different fields that were all owned by different people. And so you kind of, the owner knew what their field was, and they had it marked out in some way they knew, but no one else did. It's like a patchwork quilt of different owners' fields. And you might have someone who owns one field uh, over in the right-hand corner, another one over in the left-hand corner. So that's what we were looking at. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. The narrator kind of gets this moment and says, oh yeah, you remember the person I spoke about? It just so happens. You'd never guess what. But of all of these kind of fields that she could have worked in, she finds herself, what are the odds? working in Boaz's field. Now, at that point, the original hearers, us listening in, it isn't that he's put it, put it in going, it turned out, you'd never, it, this is unbelievable. It isn't there for that sort of tool. It isn't a moment of looking, cool, isn't that a coincidence? Now, this is a moment where the narrator is saying, don't you see, there's a greater orchestrator of events going on here. And silently, one is being spoken of who actually is actively involved. And so the original hearers, and we're to read this and say, oh, 
Oh, this isn't by accident. This is God at work in this situation. We continue. Verse 4, just then Boaz arrived from, the Beth- from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Now, sorry, I'm going to stop, keep making comments because there's just so much and we can't kind of look at everything, but I want us to get hold of some things because there's some things that we can read in the story and think, all right, fine. He kind of rides up or skips in. I don't know how he arrived. It's not clear, is it? It just says, suddenly, Boaz is here. I kind of like to think that he skipped in. That's what I reckon. I don't think he rode in. I think he skipped. He was happy. It was harvest time. So he skips in. He's skipping in. And then he says, stops. He sees everyone working him, those, those who he has employed to work the fields. And he says, the Lord bless you. He doesn't say, hello. He doesn't use a normal greeting. He says, the Lord bless you. See, for Boaz, he saw that everyday activity was a moment of God's involvement. This was in a culture, not like ours, that saw this split between the sacred and the secular of thinking that there's this stuff that is God's and then there's kind of ordinary life that you get on with. And this is within a culture that actually understood that actually everything is about God. Everything is a moment that can both be offered to God as worship and used as a moment to both worship and serve him, but also to reveal him. And for Boaz, when he saw these harvesters at work, it was a moment of him saying, oh, the Lord be with you. Because this is a moment where you are understanding this is, this is God at work, both in your worship of him, but what, how you reveal him. And for us in our 21st century mind, I know we bang this drum a lot in Oasis, but I feel it's important that we continuously understand that where we've been uniquely placed is a moment that God is continuously yearning for us to use to be a place of worship of him and a place of revealing of him. That we need to be those who continuously speak to one another, who continuously are speaking to ourselves, saying whatever we're doing, however exciting or mundane it seems, that we call into ourselves and call over others, the Lord be with you. The Lord be with me today as I do this. It transforms what seems ordinary to the absolutely extraordinary. As Gus would say, you can have that one for free. Verse 5, Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, the foreman, who does that young woman belong to? He looks over his field and spots this woman who doesn't quite fit, and he thinks, well, who's she? Who does she belong to? In other words, is she a slave of someone? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. He doesn't call her by name. He says, oh, how I identify her is by her nationality and a relationship to someone we know. She said, that's Ruth said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. If we continue. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. 
And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. We're going to be looking at this in more detail. But what we find is that Boaz's heart towards Ruth is one of extravagant kindness. Ruth's response in verse 10, as the, at this, she bowed down with her face to the ground and she asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What I love about this story is the moments where people pray out, and without knowing it, but us as the onlookers and the readers can look and say, ah, be careful what you pray. Because at this moment, he's praying, and what God's going to do is say, oh, I'm going to use you to answer your prayer for Ruth. And by the end of the story, everything Boaz prays here, he will be the fulfillment of to Ruth. May I, so verse 15, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the, other, with the harvesters, he offered her some roast grain. She ate all she wanted and some, had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some of the stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to an ephah, which is around kind of 13 kilograms of weight in grain. At that point, that, to me, that's, that's quite a lot of grain. Now, even to our ears, that can seem quite a lot of grain. In this day and age, it was an unbelievable amount of grain. They say in terms of the Babylonian time, that actually when uh, someone had to glean uh, the field, so if someone was a worker that's employed and paid in grain, because there's no point having money if you can't eat, so you're going to be paid in grain, on average, they would earn about max one kilogram of grain a, a week. And so she's, she's getting an extortionate amount. They reckon that probably it was near a kind of like over a month's salary or thereabouts that she just gets in a day. There's this unbelievable moment of extravagance that's been extended to her, if we continue verse 18. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she gathered couldn't believe it. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she'd eaten enough. It wasn't just the grain she'd got gathered. It was also she filled her pockets or whatever with the grain she'd been eating and said, have some of this. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is bum, 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 Boaz. 
she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and to the dead. She, and then it obviously continues that verse. Here's the reality. We, as the privileged readers, hearers of the story, were privy to something that Ruth never knew. That Boaz was someone who was there to be a carer of this family. And God orchestrates by chance that she ends up in his field. So we find at the very end that Ruth and this individual that she's found this unbelievable kindness from, as she's worked the field, has ended up with this extravagant provision, is one that she's revealed at the end of the story, told by Naomi. Oh, we know him. And it's at that point that we're going to stop and pause the story because it's at that point that's going to kind of be the end of episode where it's the cliffhanger moment where we think, where's this going then? Because that's what the author wanted to do. It's what the narrator wants us to understand. This is a moment of understanding. This story started to get interesting. What is Boaz going to do? Now, because we've heard the whole of the stories, we know what Boaz is going to do. And we know what the provision he is going to be for her. But there's a moment of this story just coming on down. How do we look at this story today? Well, how I want us to examine this story is under a heading of, it's a story of kindness. Because there's an understanding that this story that we've just seen starting to unfold, at this juncture as we find there's so much that could be spoken of in terms of, the, of Ruth and Boaz's first interaction, of how God's going to use this in order to provide for everything of Ruth and Naomi and be part of much bigger provision for the whole of the nation of a king that will come from their line, of David, who will then become part of our provision, of one who will then become the lineage for the Messiah, who is Jesus, both God and man, in order that all of us can sit in this room and say, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we've been saved. We see, look back and think, whoa, it happened because God invests in... What's the word I'm looking for? I've lost it in my head. God kind of gets into... I'm going to use that word for expression. Gets into the ordinariness of this story to bring about something that is absolutely extraordinary in terms of the changing of history forever. And that's what God always wants to do in any one of our stories. But it starts in this moment of just a story of kindness. Kindness that just penetrates, infiltrates this story all the way through that we've seen from week one through this uh, Hebrew word, that's a word called hesed, H-E-S-E-D. Hesed, which means loyal loving kindness. And we find that it's this expression, hesed, kindness, loyal loving kindness, that's continuously been expressed by both Ruth and now Boaz. But it's there being expressed by these individuals because it's meant to be expressing the sense of the one who's, who seems silent but is so present through the whole of the story. And that is God who is continuously loyal, loving, and kind. And therefore, when you pause and you look at the kindness that's being revealed, you then get to see, I quite like that musical effect in the background. <laughs> um, you then get to see as this kindness is being revealed by Ruth and by Boaz, that we get to then understand the kindness that God is wanting to reveal to every single one of us. So we start off then with that kindness of Ruth. We start with the kindness of Ruth because actually that's where the whole story starts. The only reason we're told that Boaz is kind to her is in reaction to her kindness to Naomi. See, though she was identified by her nationality as a Moabite and by the fact that she'd left 
her homeland, and in respect to both her identity in her nationality, but also in respect to her relationship with Naomi, what she's known as and known for is her kindness. Her identity might be her nationality, might be her relationship to someone else, but her reputation, what she's known for, is the kindness that she's expressed to Naomi. That's the point, verse 11, it says it, that she expresses this kindness to the one that she now is her mother-in-law, but she's, they're both widowers. She could have packed and left, but she didn't. She remained kind. But it's not only that, that she's willing to give up her homeland, her own family, and say, I'm going to leave that life and go wherever you go, Naomi. Her reputation was one of unbelievable kindness, of loyal, loving kindness. And it caused people to then look through and see through that for Boaz, he doesn't see someone who's a foreigner. He doesn't see someone who um, just so happens to be related to Naomi. He sees someone who's just known as unbelievably kind, extravagantly kind. How are you known? How am I known? If people come into contact with me, how would they express who I am? I'm not, I don't mean how would they identify me, that they'd identify me as someone who continuously still trying to look like he's 27. They might identify me like that, but how are they going to say, how am I going to be known as? Am I going to be known as someone who is kind? I don't mean that, that word that we can so easily slip into of, oh, they're nice, they're kind. No, I'm talking about the kindness we're talking here, which is loyal, loving kindness. The kind of kindness that costs. Because what that does is it changes others, and we find it changes Boaz here. You see, what it causes is her kindness changes his kindness. And it causes him, Boaz, we find, to act in kindness towards her. And I'd say that Boaz acts in kindness towards Ruth in five ways. I'm just quickly going to skip through them. It just helps us understand. that I think, firstly, what he does is he, he does it in respect to welcome. So he tells her, verse 8, don't glean in any other field and don't go away from here. What would have happened in this day and age is if you were looking to glean from all these patchwork of fields in, in a big area, you'd basically just go around and think, right, I'm going to take a bit from there and then I better not overdo it because they might, I might get in trouble. I'll then go and move over to here. And, and what happens is Boaz, in his kindness to Ruth, that loyal love and kindness says, actually, don't go away from here. I want you just to stay put. Stay and take everything you need from my field. You're welcome. First thing. Second one is he gives us status. Verse 8, stay here with the women who work for me. See, what um, Boaz does is he doesn't just say, right, I'm going to seek to say, here you go, here's some provision. Just like everyone else, there would have been others in the field working the land who, were, who had, weren't employed by anyone, were just seeking to kind of make that ends meet, just literally gathering what they could to feed themselves. He says, I, I don't want you to see yourself like that. I want you to see yourself like those that are employed by me. I want you to have that status. When you walk through the field, you need to understand that you have a right to be here and you're valued here. You're not someone who doesn't have a right here. You're not someone who has to cower and hide away. You're someone I've given status to. Third thing, 
Well, the third aspect of kindness is protection. Verse 9, I have told the men, and that trans- the kind of word there is probably young men, not to lay a hand on you. Now, there's kind of a, a double meaning here in terms of that laying a hand off. One is it was a big space. And if you're a single woman, you are vulnerable amongst in a big space with lots of different characters. And so firstly, Boaz says, I'm, I'm putting you under my protection. What happens to you, they answer to me for. And Boaz was well-known and well-respected, and you don't mess with him. Boaz, in terms of a name, potentially has a root that means mighty warrior. And so this is a guy who potentially is the mighty warrior. It's in an age of warriors, and so he was probably a guy he didn't mess with. It also meant someone with massive power. As he was definitely powerful, he was known he had lots of provision. He had loads of fields. But in this, he says, right, I'm going to protect you in terms of any harm that could come that way. The other sense of harm that would have happened to anyone, men or women, is that in this day and age where there was that sense of provision of you can get to the edges of the field and like glean there and pick up the grain that was left, there was also a massive degree of protection of your field. If you've been employed to work and harvest that field, you want to deliver the best harvest you can. Therefore, if you see someone, however God must, might have ordained for them to be there, you're going to protect your field. And so it's also known as a time where basically people would get a bit verbal and a bit aggressive to any individual seeking to use a right by God to take something that was provided by God for them. And that could both be verbal but also physical, so it wouldn't be beyond people to give someone a bit of a smack and say, get off my land. Now, it seems as though that phrase has continued through the ages. So I've often found myself in areas often under the parentage of my dad who would take us on walks. I don't know why, but we'd walk and we'd find ourselves in fields and I'd say, are we meant to be here? And he'd say, oh, yes, definitely we're meant to be here. And then a man would arrive with a big dog and a gun and say, get off my land. Seems as though that thing kind of kept on. Maybe that's a farming tradition. Um, in it, I'd also say as a quick aside, I think another tradition is God's heart of justice and mercy is something that we quickly forget. And in a nation like ours, this is not a political comment. Please don't hear that. In a nation like ours that is so wealthy in so many different ways, we need to remember that we're also those who are called by God to seek justice and mercy for all, to ensure the edges of what we've got, which I promise you is way better than often what people have got in their nations, that we provide for them, as well as those that are in our nation, were born here, that they are provided for too because they are there to get what we can give. That's why we pay taxes. They're good. Anyway, four included. Verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. So it wasn't just that he was saying, come and act like my workers. Come and, um, well, you're welcome to just harvest within my field. It isn't just that he's then offering protection. He also says, I'm going to include you to my harvest family. That have ate like a family, that have at the end of the day, at the middle of the day, kind of gathered around under the makeshift shelter and said, let's eat together. He says, you're not an outsider. You don't have to try and provide for yourself. You come and you eat from my table. You are included here. Number five, provided. Verse 19, verse 15, 16. First of all, what Boaz does is he provides for Ruth's immediate needs. And he says, actually, I'm going to show kindness to you. You're going to be working in the midday heat. 
I want you to understand that you don't need to try and find water. There wouldn't have been water there. They would have had to have gone to a well beforehand, gathered jars of water that then would keep the workers refreshed. He says, go and take water from my jars. All right, okay. Just in case, let's just all be aware. Leaking there. It's not an end or anything roughly electronic. There you go. <laughs> totally fine. Um, you're all now going to keep watching the leaking. If it does go, just take it like this. I'm the first one to go. So I'm the warning bell. If I'm on fire, leave. Anyway, so he provides for her both in terms of the immediate need of water. He then provides for her for an ongoing need. He provides for an ongoing need both in terms of feeding her, feeding her enough that it's both for there, but also some to take away, and then providing enough that she's gleaned both through both the generosity of saying, just follow my workers, don't keep her at a distance, follow them immediately, but also that over-generosity of saying, actually, also instructing his workers to say, actually, take some wheat that you've taken and put in a bit of a sheath, gathered up, keep taking bits out, and leave for her. He's gone over and above his extravagant provision for her. And then what happens is you get this kindness cycle. The kindness of Ruth leads to a kindness of Boaz, which then leads to a kindness of Ruth. It's fine, verse 18, that what Ruth does is, as she receives such kindness, she then seeks to share such kindness with the person immediately around us. So she immediately shares the kindness she's received with Naomi. I, kind of, I sometimes do this little experiment. It's an experiment, it's a people experiment, at a shopping queue. And at a shopping queue, what I do is I queue up, and usually I have quite a lot of stuff on the conveyor belt. And so I'm talking about a food shop. So a food shop, a lot of stuff on my conveyor belt. And if I see someone behind me, it doesn't matter how many people they are behind me, and I see they've just got like a few items, two to three items, I say to them, hey, do you want to jump ahead of me? And then I say to the other people who are behind me, I say, hey, do you mind? They've only got a couple of things. Should we let them go through? What happens is that everyone says, oh, yeah, let's let them through. And then they get to me. And then the person in front of me says, hey, I'm going to let them through as well. And before you know it, the person who's at the very back of the queue finds themselves at the very front of the queue waiting to get in. Now, at this point, all of you have just learned something. If you're in Aldi and you see me at the conveyor belt, get to my queue, <laughs> if you've only got two to three items. And in it, what you find there is that kindness leads to kindness. And that's true for us. See, we can look at this story and say, oh yeah, well, it's great, isn't it? The Boaz was nice, Ruth is nice, let's be nice. Well, no, the deal is this, that Boaz actually continuously speaks of a greater kindness, speaks of a greater one, that Boaz is always a greater Boaz that was to come, who is Jesus. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Is everyone really care? Like, it just feels like everyone's kind of like, is it going to blow? I promise you, we wouldn't keep meeting if we thought it was going to be proper damage. Here you go. I've even moved this thing now. It's lit. So it's okay. Okay, so we've got... The greater, but is there another league somewhere? All right. Um, so we've got Boaz, but we've got a greater Boaz who is to come, who is Jesus, who through his life, death, and resurrection has revealed the heart of God in all of his extravagant kindness that every single one of us has or can receive. A kindness that is exactly like Boaz showed. A kindness that means that we are welcomed. That Jesus is able to say, actually, anyone who comes to me through my life, death, and resurrection 
is welcome. Anyone. It doesn't matter the state of your heart. It doesn't matter what your life is involved in. You are welcome through me. It's one who comes and provides us status. Who through his kindness says, actually, in coming to me, it isn't you then kind of live your life as, as, a, as a thankful servant. No, no, I call you children of God. It's one who in his extravagant kindness not only welcomes us, gives us status, but also like Boaz, offers protection. He says, actually, you need to understand that in me, there's now no condemnation. That you're as accepted and as loved as you could ever be. No one can ever take any accusation against you because you've been declared accepted and loved forever by the one who can judge everyone because he's perfect. So we're protected. We're those who come under his protection as the greater Boaz, as the one who exudes such kindness. But it doesn't stop there. Just like with Boaz, it's welcome status, protection. And then he then integrates us. We're included it says that we're those that now are co-heirs with him. Isn't that we, we stand on the edge and say, oh God, you're amazing, God, you're amazing. And Jesus says, no, come on in and you share with me. You're included. What I get, you get. What I gain, you gain. How I'm loved, you're loved. So you find when Jesus prays, John 15 through to 17, those are chapters, not verses. John 15 through to 17, we find as Jesus prays, what he's continuously expounding is this relationship that he enjoys with the Father and says, oh, now we're included in that because we're in him. We find that when his kindness comes through, we say that actually it's that we're now going to share in everything that he gets, that one day the whole of the universe will be made to fall before him. He says, you're, it's this weird dynamic that at one point we'll be bowing before him saying he's amazing and at the other point he's gathering us up and saying, oh, are you sharing this with me? You get to rule and reign in it all. But he also provides for us. Just as Boaz provided, he promises that he will always be with us. Parting words. Always listen out for someone's parting words. Jesus says, I will be with you to the very ends of the age. Till I return, I'm going to be with you by my spirit. Well, those that are not alone, those who don't kind of wishfully think, oh, the Bible sounds nice, let's hope it's true. No, no, we're those that have the Spirit come and live within us in order we know that Jesus is alive and Jesus is wanting to bring his risen life in amongst us so we can know and taste that he is good and be filled with lives of joy and peace and hope because we know that he is with us. You see, when we get that kindness received, when we've received it, and this morning we're going to celebrate what we've received through communion, and maybe this morning you've come and said, well, I've never received it. Well, whether you've never received it or you've received this kindness, the response is still the same. The response is we're humbled by kindness. So you find in verse 10, when Ruth hears all that Boaz says to her, her response is this. She bows down. Literally, she fell to the floor, face to the ground. She just cannot believe it. She just looks at the state of herself and thinks, what have I done to deserve this? If when we see and taste the kindness of Jesus, whether it's the first time or the millionth time, it doesn't cause a reaction within us that causes us to fall to the floor and say, what have I done to receive this? then we haven't quite grasped the immensity of what we've received. 
Because it has to push us to that point of saying, wow, when I see how extravagant your kindness to me has been, it humbles me. And says, without that, I have nothing. And in that humbling, it isn't we're left on the floor saying, woe is me. It's rather we're left, sorry, this is going to sound so cheesy as it's in my head. I apologize ahead. We're not left saying, woe is me. It's we say, whoa, you're amazing, God. We can never be left on the floor. It's only that we're left there humbled saying, how have I got all of this? It then causes us to rush up within us of extravagant thankfulness to every kindness we've ever received from Jesus. Which then causes us then say, in that moment of thankfulness to him, how can we not share this kindness? That we live lives like Ruth and Boaz, who've received such kindness that causes us then to reveal such kindness. That causes us to be the kind of people that actually whatever people throw at us, where they slap us in the face, we've received such kindness that we can turn the other cheek. When they ask us for our coat, we give them our shoes as well. When they ask us to carry stuff for a mile, we go the extra one because we realize that everything I've received, I want everyone to understand the extravagance of it. In order that sometimes would say, people would say of me, you are too kind. Because at that point, when we start to get that reputation, we start to reveal one who is way too kind. And that transforms your day. It means that when you wake up, you're not only saying, Lord, be with me. You're saying, Lord, where are my opportunities to be kind today? As I've received your kindness, how can I be kind to people around? Whether it's for me, the guys at the co-op. For me, often it's the start of my day and I'm having to work really hard at this. It's being kind to my family. I'm not a morning person. I've confessed that often from the front here. I am not. Therefore, for me, it starts hard line, very beginning. Work in progress. Seek to be kind to those that I love around me. And then as it builds on, that around here, you know, so fortunate that I work in a cricket ground and then worked around the back end of the cricket ground, literally is the back end of the cricket ground, and therefore there was no one who didn't really know Jesus around here. It was just people around the suite who all knew Jesus. Man, I've had enough of them. So what God does is he brings a load of people who don't know Jesus onto my doorstep. So there's through there, Sure, Nick won't mind me mentioning him. Nick, who's kind of the owner of LNX, he's like on our doorstep. He doesn't know Jesus. Therefore, I get to reveal who Jesus is and his kindness continuously to them. God brought some people on my doorstep so I could do it, so we could do it, so we could meet on a Sunday and reveal what kindness looks like. Each of us has worlds. The invitation is how are you going to show kindness in it? Because what it turns into is we get to live in a cycle of kindness. A cycle of kindness where it goes like this, where we continuously are those who don't one day taste and say, cool, this is kindness of God. Oh yeah, Jesus lived, died, and rose again for me. Hooray, drink. Let's get on with the rest of my life. No, no, it's that we continuously live receiving of his kindness in order that we could then share his kindness. It's this like cycle that goes round, that we're receiving kindness 
sharing kindness. Receiving kindness, sharing kindness. Receiving kindness, you're getting it. It's kind of a, a one track. It's like, because that's going to get boring. It's never going to get boring because I tell you what, however much kindness you feel you've received from God, there is so much more for you to receive. And as you receive more, you'll show more. As you show more, you'll want to receive more. So it causes us to be this community that is no other. Isn't some kind of two-gooders? Isn't some bunch of people that people look in and say, oh, you're nice? It's a bunch of people who say, do you know what? I've tasted such kindness. I can't help but show it. Which then draws us to this point. And hopefully, without any of them getting electrocuted, I'm going to invite the band to come back. And they're going to start pushing things forward and dodging water on their heads. Because uh, all of them have very stylish haircuts, so we need to make sure we don't mess those up. But as they do that, let's not lose where God has got us. Here's my heart, God. Here's my heart, God. I don't know where your heart's at at the moment. Whether it feels empty or full, whether it feels dark or full of light. But God does. And it's in that moment as we say, here's my heart, God. That God wants us to then come and say and celebrate in his kindness. And so this morning we'll get to sing a song. And as we've sung that song, we'll then get to gather around the communion table. Not as a break from worship, but as a continuation of worship. In order that we can come and say, we're celebrating in your kindness revealed here. Of your life, death and resurrection. And as we taste it physically tasting the bread, drinking the juice. What we're saying is in that moment, we're tasting again your kindness to us. And as we receive it, we're then trusting that what God's doing as we receive it is that we then get to reveal it.